Welcome to the Missing Chapter Podcast, where you will hear some of the least known, obscure, and entertaining stories the history textbooks left out. Starring Phil Horander and Phil Schaff. In the popular movie, The Last of the Mohicans, trade relations turned violent between French-backed Mohicans and the Mohawks. The events that this movie was inspired by is part of the well-known history of the first interactions between the Europeans and Native Americans. However, few people know about a young man, Cyrus Van Den Bogart, who was the first European to chronicle the existence and lifestyle of the Mohawk Indian tribes living in the upper Mohawk region. Stay tuned to hear who our guest speaker is and what he has uncovered in today's episode, The Lost Dutch Diary. You're listening to The Missing Chapter Podcast, where you will hear some of the least known, obscure, and entertaining stories the history textbooks left out. Don't forget to follow us on all major podcast distributors. Hi, everyone. Episode four of the Missing Chapter podcast. I'm Phil Horner here with Phil Schaff. Today, we have a very special episode for you. That's why we decided to go with the Utica Coffee Roasting Company Adirondack Blueberry. Delightful. Smells as amazing as it tastes. And we are ready for our first guest speaker into the studio today, the department chair here at Canada Harry, uh, a mentor of ours, a storyteller extraordinaire, Mr. Blake Smith. I know some of our listeners, uh, especially our students, were wondering who this guest speaker was going to be. Right. And once we said in the last episode that it was one of the best storytellers we know, a lot of our students probably in their back of their heads, I hope it's Mr. Smith and I, I have an inkling that it, it's going to be. So um, Mr. Smith has an incredible story today and I'm going to hand it over to him. Before I do, I just want to ask him, how did you find out about this guy? Because in the intro, we, we described who this, this man is, but I'm assuming that the majority of the listeners had never heard of this man's name before. So how did how did you come about this story? Well, thank you, Phil and Phil, for inviting me to speak here. And I do love my uh, Adirondack blueberries, both picked from the vine and in my coffee. So I'm enjoying <laughs> it as well. But I came upon this story uh, years ago. I was allowed by our principal to teach a local history class. And so I had about four kids in a van and two periods a day, every other day, and we'd go drive around this area and learn. And so I always think about, you know, what's the oldest person who's come here first, who knows the, the original story. And I found out about this man and the man's name was Cyrus Mayendernst Vanden Bogart. And Cyrus Mayendernst Vanden Bogart was a young man. He was 18 years old. He came to what they called Fort Orange, which is today Albany in 1630. And Cyrus was, as I said, he was only 18 years old. And remember that Fort Orange had been settled only in 1625. And just to date this, I want you to date this. The French first settled Canada 1534. Quebec City was settled in 1608. Jamestown 1607. The Hudson, uh, Henry Hudson came up the Hudson in 1609. So we're talking about 15, 20 years after the first anybody came here. That's incredible. And so um, Fort Orange is a developed, uh, established trading post where Native Americans are coming down and they're trading basically beaver skin for whatever the Dutch could give them. And that could be knives, glassware, beads, awls, um, sharp things. They like metal, um, 
things that obviously they could not make themselves. And what happened was Cyrus, as a young man, was asked after he'd lived there for five years to go and investigate up into the Mohawk Valley because there was fear that the French who had come in from the other side, from the um, from Lake Ontario, had already got together with the Huron, and that they were pushing into the Mohawk Valley and, a, and kind of muscling in on the Dutch trade with the Native Americans. Mm-hmm. So it was Cyrus's job to go up there and to kind of investigate what was going on with these French people coming down. And what's interesting is that the settlement of New York State, there were there were white people, European people living west of us, and there were white people, European living east of us, but not too many white people in the Mohawk Valley. And the reason was, was because the Mohawk Valley was called the Mohawk Valley because there's Mahwa, and Mahwa means flesh eater. And the Mohawks were notorious for eating human beings. And this really freaked out people a lot, and it made them so afraid that they refused to go in. And so this area was settled much later than other places. And so what happens is, is that now um, Cyrus has to go in there, and he now why would he be afraid? Well, in 1626, a guy named Daniel Van Kriekenbach was allied stupidly against this orders with the Huron. And he and a bunch of four other Dutchmen went with the Huron, went into Mohawk country, captured, tortured, cooked, and eaten. Oh, my gosh. And the story came back, and the, the quote was, after being well-roasted. Oh, so that is the quote that comes back. And so the, the fear was real. And so Cyrus Meinders van den Bogart goes into Mohawk country. He goes with, he has two other Dutchmen who travel with him. Um, one's name is Willem Thomason, not that that matters. And uh, Delacroix is this other guy. And then he had a slave with him, his own slave, Tobias. And then he had some Native Americans who led him through on the way, who, by the way, will leave him in the end. So basically the, the part of the story that I need to tell you before I get to the main meat was that he goes up, he does this experience. He takes off in December. He comes back in January, about two weeks three weeks, something like that. And he comes back and through the story I will tell you is his diary, which he wrote down. It wasn't a diary. It was a, a folded piece of parchment in which he would write daily what happened. It was all folded in this paper. His parchment diary was lost and it disappeared. No one ever knew what, it, what happened to it, nor did they miss it because no one knew it existed, but it ended up in a, a, an attic in Amsterdam, Holland. And somebody was going through like you are in your basement, your attic looking, what's this? And they came upon this document. They found it. It was in 1895. They find this thing. So basically we're talking about 1635 to 1895. We're talking 250 years. Okay. So that, it was in there or longer than math. Bad. So it sits in there so long. Everybody is that the Dutch language has changed. So the words he is writing down in this, on this thing, they, the Dutch people can't even read it because the language has changed so much. They have to bring in these ancient Dutch scholars and they go through it. And they try to figure this whole thing out. And they also ultimately break it down and they rewrite it. And some people have argued that it's not really what it says and that the numbers are off and there's distances in there that are strange. And what's really interesting is that two men whose name is Charles Gehring and William Starna, who are one is from St. Johnsville and the other is from Fort Plain, become the main archaeologists who look into this. And therefore they went and they've tried to figure out where, when they broke down, when they translated this, they say, where are those places where he's describing his thing? Wow. That's amazing. So it took a long time for them to come up with this. So fairly recently have they come up and they even admit, by the way, Starna and Gary, they're not quite sure what they're talking about because the river moves and, you know, things like that. But the interesting thing that goes into this is that ultimately his his life just begins here. So basically what happens is, and here, here is the story of what really happens with, um, with Cyrus. So Cyrus goes in to Mohawk country and he heads up in there and he spends, as I said, many days 
going through that with people. And um, what's interesting is that he leaves on December 11th. So it's in the middle of the winter. And you guys live in upstate New York. You know what the winters are like in New York State. And so he decides to go up in the winter, which was probably a mistake because there was high snows. There was ice everywhere. It was dangerous. And as he goes through, as I told you, he kept this, this journal. He was sent by a guy named Martin Garrison, who was the head of Fort Orange, who sent him off to do this. And as he went, he, he described certain stories, which are fascinating stories. And we would have never known them had we not found this diary. Stories like um, about how on his first day, the dog the dogs ate all his food. You know, I mean, it sounds like a story like us being camping. Right. But he's going on to Mohawk country where he doesn't know it's ahead of him. So he lost their food. I mean, he talked about passing through heavy snow. He also talks about something that were called castles and all along the Mohawk Valley castles were palisaded villages. And there was a, there's many of them, but some of the bigger ones are right around us. In fact, mm -hmm. my home is what's called the middle village. I'm going to describe it in a minute. So where I live in Fort Plain on Prospect Hill is the middle village. It was one of the largest of the villages that he'll visit. So he passes through and he has these unbelievably great stories. And, um, some of the stories include um, he meets a tame bear. So at some point, the Indians had, had must have killed the mother bear, had a pet, pet bear. This bear was three or four years old, and they would fatten him up and feed him kind of the garbage of the, of the village, and then they would eat him eventually. But um, uh, uh, ben, uh, Cyrus Minder, Van and Bogart, he actually tried to buy this bear, but they would not sell the bear to him. Um, he tells a story, by the way, when he was in Kanjo, I know this at one point, he was December 20th, so five days before Christmas, and he talks about Christmas, by the way, he's, he's a religious man, um, he writes Jesu at the end of everything, you know, um, something about Lord Jesus after each one, but he talks about that on the 20th, he's in Kanjo, which is really, actually, it's, it's Spreakers, they call it the Rum Rill Nailer site, but if you know 162 and Kanjo, Harry, kind of between there, there's a, the biggest burial site of Mohawks that there exists. They call it rum rail nailers. We taught some rum rails, I think. Um, but that's the major village. And that place, by the way, he describes um, being given a lion skin to sleep in. So he gets a lion skin. So you think about lions, wait a minute, where do you get lions from? But you know, mountain lion skin. And it gave him lice. And he had lice for the rest of the journey. He said, I woke up with a hundred lice all over me. Um, but then he gets to that. Now remember, I didn't tell you who Cyrus was. Cyrus, is who he, his job was called a uh, surgeon Barber surgeon. Okay. And you guys know, yeah. do you, did you know that, that the, um, the, at the barber, you know, that the barber pole yes, is yeah. blue and red and yes. blood. Yeah. So barber surgeon. So they were basically people that were good with knives. All right. So they were good with knives. So he would cut your hair and cut you right. if you had to. And there's going to be a story here when she does, he actually does do some cutting, um, later on, but he was, he was considered a doctor. So as he came through, the Indians would find out what was your job, what was your doctor? And he would, they would want him to, to, fix people he wanted them to cure them and so they would bring him in and here is one of the stories that he describes and this story this is verbatim from a 1635 diary that was translated from old dutch into new dutch into english and here it goes okay so he he says um says perhaps the surgeon's most invaluable entries though regarded iroquois healing ceremonies his log of, for Christmas Eve included one of the earliest European descriptions of Iroquois medicine on record. Since it was Sunday, I looked in on one person who was sick. He invited me into his house, two of their doctors who were supposed to heal him. They were called sanachchos, meaning to exercise the devil. As soon as they arrived, they began to sing and kindle a large fire, sealing the house all around so that no draft could enter. The both of them put a snakeskin around their heads and washed their hands and faces. Taking a bucket of water in which they had put some medicine, they washed a stick in it and stuck it down their throats, 
so that the end could not be seen and vomited on the patient's head and all over his body. Then they performed many farces with shouting and rapid clapping of hands as is their custom. So you kind of, you think about that and you're like, whoa, that's some kind of fake thing that was some movie made up or something. But this is described 1600s, this is. And what's interesting is I looked into it and this is what um, later is called the Masked False Face Society, which is actually a, a Native American thing that we we study in, in local history here of the masks. And you guys right, know this right, yeah. that is part of that, which is he, he probably the first white person to describe um, this ceremony. Um, another example was when he was going along is that he um, it says um, Europeans, of course, use blisters, leeches, amputation and astrology to do medicine. So it doesn't seem like, you know, vomiting on someone's head is that strange considering that they the Europeans barely knew what they were doing. True. So it was obviously interesting to him being a doctor or whatever. But then he um he talked about how he was involved. It says two men came to me and said I should come and see how they would drive out the devil. When we arrived the floor of the house was completely covered with tree bark over which the devil hunters would walk. They were old men who were all colored or painted with red and their faces because they were with red paint on their faces because they were to perform something strange. In the middle of this house was a very sick person who had been languishing for a long time. And there sat an old woman with an empty turtle shell in her hands in which were beads that rattled when she sang. Here they attempted to catch the devil and trample him to death for they stomped all the bark in the house to pieces. After much stomping and running, one of them went to the sick person and took an otter fur from his hand and for a long time sucked on the sick man's back and neck. Then he spit in the otter and threw it to the ground, running away with great excitement. Other men then ran to the otter and performed such antics that it was a wonder to see. They then threw fire, ate fire and ashes around to the point where I had to run from the building. All right. I just have to say for the listeners at home, I know you can't see us right now, but Phil and I, uh, we're basically sitting here in awe of what we're hearing yeah. and our jaws are, are essentially on the floor. This is unbelievable. And for two, two guys who've grown up and spent pretty much their entire lives in this area of New York state, completely new story. And it's fascinating. It sounds like, like really a Hollywood movie script. It really does. Yeah. And what's funny is that I learned more about it all along. In fact, when I started thinking about talking, telling the story, I learned all sorts of new things. Um, there's a book called the island at the center of the universe about the dutch in manhattan it came out a few years ago and that's kind of the source of much of this information mm -hmm. which recently came out um new york state by the way did an entire investigation and study by new york state department of history did a whole study on the dutch in new york state and it's actually a great thing that i've learned about down in um in new york state museum has an entire section on dutch history of which i've become more and more interested in because it's kind of forgotten because we Completely. always think of ourselves yeah. as English. In fact, um, some of the great stories, I have one more quick stories, although there's plenty of them of these things that you couldn't possibly believe that are real are, are true. One of them, it was actually very close to the date that I just described. And it was December 23rd, uh, two days before Christmas. And um, it's described, it says, a man came shouting and screaming through some of the houses here. However, we did not know what it was supposed to mean after a while, Geronimus Delacroix, who was one of the, the white people that traveled with him, came and wondered what it meant that the Indians were arming themselves. I asked them what was meant by it, and they said it was nothing against me. We are going to play with one another. There were four and there were four with clubs and some with axes and sticks, and there were twenty men under arms, nine on one side and eleven on the other. 
Then they went at each other, fighting and striking. Some wore armor and helmets, which they made themselves from thin reeds and cord woven together so that no arrow or axe could penetrate to cause serious injury. After they had skirmished in this manner for a long time, the adversaries ran at one another. The one dragged the other by the hair, as they would do with conquered enemies, and would then cut off their heads. They wanted us to fire our pistols. They faked it, by the way. They faked the cutting off of their heads because they were their own. They wanted us to fire our pistols, but we went away and left them. Today we feasted on two bears, and we received today one and a half skipple of beans and some dried strawberries. Also, we provided ourselves with, here with bread that we could take along on the journey. Some of it had nuts, chestnuts, and dried blueberries mm. oh, and sunflower seeds baked in. So that's just some of the stories that we heard. And that sounds a little bit like a lacrosse game to me. Yeah, it does. It's Helmets, does, yeah. um, armor made of reeds. And so it seems like something maybe leading up to that as well. And so these stories are often are really awesome. And so he comes back and with his story and he tells everyone of it. And the, the report that he provides is that the French are in, are infiltrating their trading. And so they got to do something about it. But when he comes back, he somehow, and, and this is kind of a lost part of the story, he ends up going down to Manhattan. So he leaves Fort Orange, he goes down the Hudson River, down to Manhattan. And while there, they, and I've never heard this part before until fairly recently from that book, um, the Center of the Universe book, was that he um, was in Manhattan and that Manhattan was this kind of wild and crazy place with drunkenness and, and misbehavior and prostitution and stuff. And I, I was never heard of this before. And what's interesting is they, they compare it to what's going on at Plymouth at the time, which is this highly, re highly religious, strict um, authoritarian rule, whereas Manhattan at this time is kind of this wild west, and they actually describe it kind of as, as a wild west place in which um, these things went on. And he had a couple times where he got arrested for public drunkenness, fighting, and this was all reported, by the way. And then he picks up and decides he's going to become a pirate. <laughs> I'm not kidding. And this I just found out. It turns out that he was in there in 1637. Now, remember, he arrives somewhere on 1630 to Fort Orange, Albany. He goes in 1635 by two years later he's in manhattan he's got his own ship called la garza he takes this ship he goes down to the caribbean to capture spanish gold and he had heard that he could do this well he goes down there and he has no success he gets a little bit but he doesn't do all that well so he comes back to manhattan so for three years between 1637 and 1640 he's pirating the caribbean like jack sparrow does he have any did you find any uh documents or anything that that says what his motivation was like why money Totally well, there was this, the story of other people like him having done the same thing and making, you know, 11 million guilders or something like that. There was stories that you could become very, very rich from one trip down in, wow. in pirating. He sounds like a resourceful individual, too. I mean, he's able to whatever he wants to do within a very short period of time. He's doing it. Yes. Mm -hmm. And his life, it, his life is going to be fairly short here, by the way. I'm going to end it for you. I'm warning you. But um, he gets back there in 1640. Now, remember, this is 20 years after Plymouth Rock. So he's already done all this stuff, what I just described to you, by, the, by within 20 years of Plymouth Rock, the Mayflower. Yeah. All right. So within 20 years, he's already done this, and he's back. So he returns, and he goes, and for some reason, he goes back to Fort Orange. And I read this. What was weird is he was at a, he was at a bar, and there was some kind of a drunken fight, and like a sheriff comes up to me and goes, hey, what are you doing here? You don't belong here. Get out of here. And he, it's apparently he gets out and he goes to Fort Orange. Like he's kicked out of town. <laughs> and, and somehow he goes back there. He becomes the head of the commissary at Fort Orange. He's in charge of the place. So he goes up there. He's in there from 1640 to 1645. And while he is there, and this is the most amazing thing that I just went, you got to be kidding me, is he apparently bumps into Father Isaac Jogues. 
And Pfizer, Father Isaac Jokes is one of the most famous Mohawk Valley people of all time because he's a Catholic priest who came into the Mohawk Valley to try to convince the Mohawks to become Catholic. He was a, a Frenchman. He came in. And that is important because, you know, if we, we know the story of, of our area is that Blessed Kateri, mm-hmm. Kateri, who is a a, the North American martyr, and, and sorry, the North American saint. She's the only North American saint, I, I'm, I believe. And she apparently tried to defend him, but he was tortured. He had both his thumbs cut off. He was, um, all his fingernails pulled out of it. It was just terrible torture. And he went on for an entire year. And then finally he gets out. He, he frees himself, um, Father Isaac jokes, and goes down to Fort Orange. And guess who's there? Cyrus Minders Van Boga. And guess what job he is? <laughs> He's the surgeon. So he actually, he doctors um, this Catholic priest back into health. And I have a quote here that, that describes him. This is from, this is Cyrus describing Father Isaac. Now, how they got this one, I don't know. Right. Besides to increase my blessings, that is to say my crosses, the wound which a dog had inflicted upon me the night that I escaped from the Iroquois caused me so a great pain, so great a pain, that if the surgeon of that settlement, Vanden Bogart, had not put his hand to it, I should have not lost not only my leg, but my life from gangrene and was already setting in. This is Father Isaac describing how that he saved him and he wouldn't have made it had he not been for Cyrus. So he gets saved. And the sad part about poor old um, Father Isaac is he goes back because he didn't learn his lesson. He goes back wow. in there and they finally did kill him. Wow. And that, Phil, you and I were talking the other day, was where the chalice comes in. Yes. So in 1985 or something, somebody was digging around in Fort Plan. They came up with this chalice, which they think was one of six chalices that Father Isaac took in there to do communion. Wow. And that they, they the story was that it had all been thrown away, but one of them comes up and it's been looked at and they're pretty much sure that it's one of them right in, in downtown Fort Plain or somewhere. Somebody was digging in their garden and pulled up this thing. So so that's, so that's now Cyrus now has had all this experience, all I described to you. He is now kind of in charge of this, um, this area of Fort Orange. And here's when it finally gets interesting, if that wasn't interesting enough. So... In 1646, Father Isaac is killed, martyred, Kateri, Kateri becomes a saint. Well, she just came, became a saint in the last 10 years, something like that. But he eventually is sent back up to Fort Orange, and here it goes. So he is caught red-handed, sodomizing his slave, Tobias. Now, we talked about, and I, I kind of throw it out that there, like, how do we get here? <laughs> in the meantime, by the way, Cyrus married a woman, had four children in, in Manhattan. He then, and still drunken and misbehaving, and he gets sent back up to Fort Orange and then somehow gets caught with sodomizing his slave. And there's, and it's not, it's the worst, rape is never used. Mm-hmm. They're talking about maybe consensual, we don't know. And what's interesting is as I read this and I did Cyrus Mind, Van you know what came up? A bunch of, of, um, of articles for, about gays in America. Interestingly enough, that they were brought up as gays in America and, and people that have been mistreated for it. Well, so he gets caught with it and arrested. And he's charged. And back in those days, there were Calvinist Christians and homosexuality was death penalty, regardless of who was doing it. So it, both of them faced the death penalty, both Tobias and Cyrus. And this had happened before where some guy got caught um, sodomizing his slave and they did kill him. They didn't kill the, the little boy who was a slave, but they did kill him. So they, they, both of these guys were facing basically death. They're, in, they're jailed. They escape from jail, which you wonder how that happened. But don't forget, um, he was the head of the place. So he was the oh. boss of it. So maybe he knew people. He gets out. The two of them escape. And where do they go? Back to the Mohawk. 
So they escape back up into the Mohawk Valley. And a lot of this part, we don't quite know what goes on, but clearly he's gone back into that. And then I found out that later that homosexuality in Native American culture was not frowned upon, that this was not kind of a, a, a thing that you were punished for or that was even um, condemned. And there are stories of Native American men dressing as women and being accepted by the community as that was what they were in the 1600s. I never heard of this before. In the no. 1600s. No. Dress, and dressing as women. Men dressing as women, and 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 they, they use kind of interesting language, but they just you know that they say they never marry stuff right. like that because they just kind of left it that. But that that wasn't that wasn't that strange. So they took off. They went back up in the Mohawk Valley, and Tobias somehow gets caught. So the slave guy he gets caught. He's shipped back, but Cyrus does not. And so they send out a, a search party, and the guy's name was Voss, V O S, and Voss means the fox. And so these Dutch guys go wandering through our valley, by the way, going looking for Cyrus Minders Van Bogart, who's held up with a bunch of natives up in some longhouse somewhere. And they finally find him and he won't give up. And so apparently, according to the story, either they did or Cyrus sets the place on fire, sets the building on fire, and Cyrus ultimately is caught. And the reason we know that the place was set on fire is after this is all over, by the way, the Native Americans go, hey, 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 we want some money here. He burned up all our stuff. Yeah. And they pay them. And they pay them. So this is actually from business records that we know that this kind of stuff occurred. So Cyrus gets arrested. He gets shipped back. And once again, everybody, he escapes <laughs> somehow. And it's it's documented. He escapes again. He escapes. But in this particular case, instead of going up the Mohawk, he decides he's going to escape across the Hudson River in the ice and apparently breaks through the ice and is drowned oh. and never seen again. And so Cyrus kind of disappears from history. And how old was he at this point, approximately? Can we? Um, yes, we do know because it was he was eighteen in he was eighteen in third eighteen sixteen thirty, and he dies in sixteen forty seven. So seventeen plus eighteen thirty five. They say it was forty, but but you know somewhere around there. But this man's life in forty years is. He, the places he was traveling during this time and the events that were going on, it's just hard to wrap my mind around. It's Completely. amazing. And the story, the best part about basically the story was because of this kind of scandal about this man, he was kind of written off from history because of this. And all his stuff was basically kind of thrown into a box and shipped off. And what was interesting is that the diary, there was record of the diary, but it was signed Van Rensselaer. W. Edwards Deming once wrote, The world is drowning in information, but slow in acquisition of knowledge. Help spread information by following us on Instagram and liking us on Facebook today. Thank you for listening to the Missing Chapter podcast with us, Phil Schaff and Phil Horander. So I think the question that is on everyone's mind is the fact that maybe he never he never got credit for this. Well, not until all the information was translated and they realized that it was from his particular journey and he finally did get credit for it. But I think that part of what we need to look at in terms of this story is a couple of things. One is people always wonder, what do historians do? What's the job of a historian? Well, historians went and they translated that information and they walked it and they found places and they dug um, pits in Palatine Bridge and in Sprakers to try to find the information. And where do they know where to look? They learned, knew where to look from writings from a Dutchman 400 years ago. And I think that points to the importance of writing and the lo loss of writing we've had in America and the lack of letter writing and the lack of, of just general literature 
And I think that we need to, to point out that this really was able to describe vividly the lifestyle, the behaviors of Native Americans that we never would have been able to see had he not written it down in such glowing and vibrant detail. And his story really as a whole that unlocked all of those mysteries for us. You know, I'm thinking about the episode titled The Lost Dutch Diary. Do we know where the parchment is today, where it ended up? It is currently in the New York State Historical Society in, I believe it is in Manhattan right now, the New York Historical Society. But it is still used and looked at and reinterpreted. Because as I pointed out, the old Dutch, they're not quite sure what it meant. Distances were strange. Um, names were moved around. So this is a kind of an ongoing thing. And in fact, recent information has come up in books that have been published in the last 10 years. Is there anything else? Like, I, I know you touched upon, we're losing the art of documentation. Everything is, is social media based. So it's either a, a quick tweet or it's a picture on Instagram. And we're kind of losing the art of journaling. Is there anything else from this story that you feel like we as historians and listeners as, as just, you know, regular civilians that we need to learn from this? Well, I think we need to learn, and I think that you guys mentioned too, is that so much was going on in America outside of Plymouth Rock, outside of Jamestown. We know Pocahontas, we know Mayflower, but we didn't know that at the same time, there were entire communities of other people who are non-English people living in our area and interacting with the Native Americans prior to really the existence of English people. And I think that sometimes we think about um, English America and English colonies and we kind of forget the others. And as I pointed out to you, um, Cyrus Minders Van den Bogart died 136 years before the Declaration of Independence. So we're only 240 years old as a country. So he was there 130 some odd years prior to the Declaration of Independence. So it just shows that there's been Europeans living in America way before we were even a country. And I think that's something we overlook and, and we think that we're just an English place. That's a great point. That's great. Well, Blake, listen, I think this is an episode as I'm listening to you talk and, and, and tell your stories, it's going to be one that I go back to and listen to several times just to, to pick up on details that I, I probably missed the first time through. But on behalf of Phil and, and on behalf of our listeners, thank you so much for coming in and, and being a part of this and, and sharing your storytelling and your research with us. It was it was a big treat for us, and I'm sure uh, everyone agrees with that. And I thank you, and I'm very happy that you both are doing these podcasts because I think they're very useful, and you've gotten great responses from people, and I hope that it continues to grow. Thank right. you so much. Thank you, and we look forward to having you back. Uh, just to give our listeners an idea about episode five, we're going to delve into one of my personal favorite time periods, which is the U.S. Civil War. And it's a story of irony, and it's a story that will, will really trace the full scope of the conflict from start to finish. So that's what we're, we're working on for you next week. Thank you for joining us. I'm Phil Schaff. I'm Phil Horander. And I'm Blake Smith. And another missing chapter has been added to the history textbooks.